This is unstructured. Chase Hughes. How are you doing, man? I've been trying to get you on here forever. Eric, I'm good, man. Thanks for having me on. This is fantastic. Now, I've spoken about you multiple times in different episodes of the podcast. So for everyone listening, I'm sure the name sounds really familiar. Chase wrote a book called The Ellipsis Manual, Analysis and Engineering of Human Behavior. Now, that's a great subtitle, but could it also be called the, uh, colloquially, The Anarchist Cookbook of Manipulation? Definitely could be. Absolutely. I want to start out the gate and have some fun with this, but with what you're teaching and what you do, and you put a lot of stuff out there that isn't necessarily desirable for everyone to see, things from George Estabrooks and that sort, are you and your book a honeypot for creeps? Honeypot is a strong word. I think that uh, anything, I, I honestly consider the book to be a weapon. And I think it's far harder to use than an M4. And uh, there are creeps that are attracted to guns. And there are creeps that are attracted to weird stuff. And I think 99% of the people who would use this for bad stuff don't have the dedication to put in the effort to get good at it. Uh, okay. So you're depending a little bit on stupidity and laziness. Sure. Uh, I mean, uh, there's going to be people who use it for to do bad stuff. And I think it's very similar to any weapon that 99% of people will, will use it to either protect themselves, protect someone else, or to help someone. I like to tackle this immediately because I feel it's really important. When we're talking about influence and things of that sort. I went through it a lot with Brian Ahern, who was um, taught by Robert Cialdini himself. But I feel like there's two sides of the equation that you can use things to help you and help others, or you can abuse them. So I, I really want to get out the gate and say, hey, this is dangerous stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think one of the purposes I had for writing the book was initially as an intelligence operations manual for our guys that are doing this overseas. And I was talking about it to a small focus group, an interdisciplinary group, and a couple of them were psychotherapists. And even with all my college experience in psychology, it never really occurred to me that this had any sales or business or therapeutic aspect. And it turns out to be a, a tremendous tool for that stuff. Yeah, that's interesting. You've mentioned before that um, academics all but ignore a lot of things that are in the book, for example, body language, they talk about how nonverbal communication is the majority of communication, but they don't actually teach it <laughs> in universities. So true. Like if let's say you went to Harvard, uh, the same university that says nonverbal communication is two thirds of, of communication spends less than 20 minutes teaching their students about it in psychology. So 12 years of school, you might get four PowerPoint slides on nonverbal communication. And it's the same university saying that it's the most vital part of communication. It's just, it's silly. Could that be because the academics themselves aren't naturally good at it? It's possible. And I've noticed um, the academics typically need an extremely empirical, peer-reviewed proof when body language is, is proven to a great extent but we can't universally prove that it applies to almost every human being. Fair enough. But we accept other things that don't apply universally. 
Absolutely. Just like the, the DSM, which is the Bible for psychologists to diagnose mental illness, that doesn't apply to everybody. And the illnesses are a generalization. Anything you study in psychology is technically a generalization based on statistical analysis. So that's why it was so shocking to me that they wouldn't at least adopt uh, a, a, at least one course or one semester covering this. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating on that. And you brought up the DSM. That's something I've always found curious. I didn't actually know it until I interviewed James Fallon. Um, they don't define a psychopath. And they don't define a sociopath. Those are not actually diagnosable. Yeah. <laughs> you can be diagnosed with all kinds of crazy stuff, but psychopath and sociopath are, are non-diagnosable mental illnesses. Now, how does that work in what you do? Because I think I've talked to you in person about that, about can you read a psychopath or sociopath, someone who's, shall we say, emotionally dead enough to where they're not giving a whole lot of tells? Absolutely. The, one of the ways, one of the best ways in an interrogation scenario, which I'm, I'm assuming that you're referring to. Sure. In an interrogation scenario, it's not necessarily the nonverbal tells with the body that we're looking for. It's the nonverbal tells with the voice. And I know we say voice is not, some people might assume that it's verbal, but when we say nonverbal, we mean everything but the words or the syntax. So we're talking about the volume, the pitch, the speed, the tone of the voice and the chronology of what somebody's saying. So if we if you have a story that's perfectly rehearsed, like, say, Scott Peterson, who killed his mm -hmm. wife, pregnant wife, he had this story completely rehearsed, gives it to the interrogator. But when we say things forward, no matter how many times we say something forward, we don't memorize it in reverse. Mm -hmm. So if the interrogator says, all right, take me from the end of the day and walk me to the beginning. Truthful events, we can recall in reverse. So Eric, if I asked you to tell me what you did right now and go back to when you woke up this morning, you'd be able to do it. But sure. you've said the alphabet 60,000 times in your life, and we can't say it backwards without having to really stop and turn some gears in our head. It's funny you bring that up because that's like one of the perfect DUI traps that a sober person <laughs> can't really pass that. Right. I think only two states are allowed to use it. It's been ruled uh, against the law for police to use that now in DUI checkpoints or uh, uh, FST, field sobriety test. And it, it really should be. Now, let's switch conditions. Um, we mentioned the psychopaths and I also am going to have Chris Voss on and he does a lot of um, negotiation. And again, I feel like there's kind of an overlap with with what you do there. Sure. Especially with like um, crisis management hostages or whatever. What about when you're dealing with a schizophrenic, somebody who is literally off? So anybody that's, uh, I'd say you'd treat someone with schizophrenia the same way you would anyone that's suffering any kind of psychotic break. And from a diagnostician or a, a, a clinician standpoint, you want to make sure that the cause of this illness is, is mental and not physical, i.e. a tumor or something pushing on the brain uh, before you conduct an interrogation. So that's why they have the people come in. And as far as interviewing someone who's a schizophrenic, I'm not an expert. I would never claim to be an expert in that field. Mm -hmm. But I would say that you need to play to the person's need every time. So whether or not they're mentally unstable or completely stable, that person's need should govern the behavior of the interrogator. If they need power, they need control, they need to feel like the person that's really in charge. I'm the interrogator that's walking in there 
acting very submissive or anxious, nervous, insecure. I'll mispronounce words on purpose. I'll have a piece of my shirt tail hanging out. I have a coffee stain on my shirt or I'll have one of the police officers yell at me like I'm in trouble as I'm coming in there. So I'll do all of this stuff. This person who needs to feel this power and control in the scenario starts to feel that. And the more they do, the more they relax. How many episodes of Columbo did you watch growing up? <laughs> I have the <laughs> uh, entire series, actually, five feet away from me <laughs> on DVD. Oh, how funny. I, another one, and because I did want to segue into it, you had brought up how you can get great life lessons from Andy Griffith. Yes. I think uh, the Andy Griffith show uh, itself is is a great show. But aside from that, I think the, the character, Andy Griffith, is kind of the iconic version of a behavioral leader. And by a behavioral leader, I mean someone whose behavior automatically produces following behavior in other people. So this kind of behavior, if you watch Andy Griffith, he does behavior engineering scenarios on Barney Fife to make Barney Fife feel better about himself, to make him feel more confident, make him more competent in his job. And I think the way that this got started is we had this giant volume of Andy Griffith DVDs when I worked in a, a military prison area. And when somebody would screw up, they would have to go pick a random episode and write the leadership lesson they learned from that one episode of Andy Griffith and how it applies to what they screwed up. And it worked every time. They were able to glean some kind of leadership lesson, no matter which episode they picked, that would fix their problem or that specifically related to the problem that they had. Fantastic. And I think you've mentioned that um, before, and I've had like Chris Widener on, um, he's an influence guy, and your message is pretty similar on that. Um, have your shit together. Yep. Have your shit together. Andy Griffith, I could agree, does come, almost comes off as superhumanly put together yeah. You know, the perfect gentle father, leader, behavioral guy. And that sends me to another direction that's kind of interesting because there's a religious connotation to Andy Griffith. And I've noticed that a lot of these leadership experts kind of come out of the sales world. And a lot of them, like the Jim Rohns, the Chris Wideners, the um, Zig Ziglar, they're all very religious. And it yeah. seems to be a foundation in influence with them. I'm not sure. I've never studied the correlation, but that's really interesting. But I might suggest possibly that the people who are doing the influence, the leadership and sales training that are that old came from a religious background because of their age. And the people who are my age and younger who are doing it nowadays don't really have a religious base uh, for all of their teachings. I think that Christianity was so commonplace. It was, it was the thing to do in America in the fifties, sure. sixties and seventies, that it became kind of the base of all self-development because you go to church on Sunday, you get kind of a, a large lesson about the Bible. And then, uh, somewhere kind of hidden in there is like, this is how you argue less with your wife, or this is mm -hmm. how you know, you get out of bed on time, or this is how, you know, you find the discipline to pay your bills when you don't want to. So I think that was like the original self-development and people took that as the base of the pyramid, I think. Could be. Uh, interestingly enough, like Chris Widener was training to be a, a pastor. Oh, I have no and, idea. And I think Jim Rohn as well. Um, 
And we even joked about how if you want to sell something, find a Mormon. <laughs> because they know how to knock on doors and be rejected. So yeah. I, I, I've spent a lot of times just kind of looking and looking and just finding weird parallels. Like um, Zig Ziglar, I bring him up because I feel like he was on to how to communicate with people much more than the academics in Harvard. Absolutely. Yeah. Now I'm wondering, did he get that through just native experience? And where did you come out of? Can you rephrase that, Eric? Sure. Sorry. It's convoluted. Um, I had mentioned the religious background and the self-development. And you mentioned modern practitioners really don't come from that. Where would you say they do come from? I would say they, me also kind of speaking about myself, comes from having a little bit of confusion earlier on in life and turning to books and getting kind of hooked on this self-development, which, which I did. I started tracking my progress. I started journaling a lot. And then the the thing that happened to me, I looked back one year, I looked, I had this completely worn out journal and I saw how far I'd come and it instantaneously became addicting. So not just the tracking my behaviors and making myself better, but like getting wisdom from books. And it was astonishing to me that I could pick up a book off the shelf and get someone's collected 70 years of wisdom of, of failures that I don't have to make and just continue just racking up just kind of like a, like a video game. And I think a lot of us, especially nowadays with growing up with video games where, where those guys might've had church and mm. having this video game analogy especially for me, it was like leveling up this character, just building the armor, building the uh, capabilities, the skill trees and stuff. And that's really what got me addicted to it. And what really set me over the edge is when I started learning about behavior profiling and body language and influence. And I saw what I could do. And I saw what human beings were capable of talking to each other. That made it addictive because it's a power that I would say less than 2% of people have. I'm guessing that some people intuitively just have it almost like they didn't necessarily study. They just sort of picked it up um, environmentally, maybe naturally found leadership, whatever. You and Absolutely. I both have a military background. Yours is obviously more, but I'm sure you found that with leaders in the military. They may not have studied any of this, but just through time and effort and being squared away. Yeah. And that this interesting conversation I was having with Mark Bowden, who you just had on your podcast, one of the most fascinating guys I've ever met. And we're talking about, we brought up the Naval Academy uh, here in the U.S., which is in Annapolis, mm -hmm. and how the quality of officers they churn out tends to be much higher than an ROTC officer at the outset. So the ROTC officer may bypass this guy later on down the road a year or two, but sure. it seems to me as a behavior analyst that these guys coming out of the academy have something that the other guys don't. And the big debate that I have on a regular basis with people, or, the, or not the debate, the discussion was, do they find these people or do they manufacture these kinds of people? Yes. So are they experts at finding the exact right type of people 
or does the experience at the Naval Academy create that type of person? So this humility is created by being humiliated, basically, your first year there, which they call like the plebe summer, and they start out just being peons. And it's kind of a, a gradual, long, drawn-out fraternity initiation type of process. Or And through all the leadership lessons. So that's that's one of the big questions, like which goes back to what you were talking about. Like, are those excellent leaders manufactured or are they just kind of found at the beginning? I think it's both. Even in, you had a, let me see, were you an officer or enlisted? Chief. Chief, okay. So you went through a basic training. Even just basic training in the military is all about breaking you down and then rebuilding you up. Mm-hmm. Have four years of it. Yeah. In a compressed environment. Somebody who's in the ROTC program is kind of a part-timer, however you look at it. But somebody who's in the academy, be it um, the Naval Academy or West Point, because I was Army, they're obviously entrenched in it, full indoctrination, year-round. Yes. And I think that you can't help but absorb it. I mean, we had that um, in basic training where you had the whole routine of God, this sucks. How much longer can this go on? And then by halfway through three quarters, you start laughing about it because you realize, (laughs) Oh, what are they going to do? You know, they can only mess with me so long before lunch. That's right. That's right. It's a really good point. And I'm actually curious about you and Mark Bowden because you're a reader and he's a thrower and I could just imagine the friction in the air or the tension because he's throwing so many body signals and doing so much. He's really dynamic. Yes. And you, I I could almost see it over overloading your senses a little bit. It was, uh, I don't know. I, I, I wasn't really trying to pick up on anything. I think the conversation was so interesting that uh, I I was just lost in in our, our conversation that we were having. It's not really often that, two body language experts walk into a bar and then they get the punchline at the end. But it was just fascinating to, to see another practitioner, especially at his level is one of the best in the United States, probably one of the top 10 in the world. And we had a guy with us, his name was Bert. He hadn't said anything for like 30 minutes. And Mark finally gestures over to Bert and he's like, Bert, you haven't said anything. And Bert goes, no, I I don't want to, you guys, please (laughs) keep talking. I'm enjoying listening to this. No, it's wonderful. I mean, I, I enjoyed the heck out of interviewing Mark. We're going to do it again, too. It just, I, I love that interaction. And he's all over the place. I mean, all over the place. So much fun. Yes. Dynamic. Now, speaking of that, that's one of the questions I had for you. I've studied a lot of interviews that you've been on. And I feel like there's often a competition with the interviewer and Mm. you, I, I'm not sure why that is, but how does it feel making a bunch of interviewers nervous? Anybody who knows what I do is usually nervous until we have some kind of genuine dialogue and they're like, Oh, this guy's just a normal dude. And a lot of times when I'm on these interviews, I think they have a lot of questions scripted out, but there's some things that come out that they may want to Oh, let's let's kind of jump on that for a little while, and then want to get back to the question. And I'm usually I get nervous on these podcasts. You know, I'm like, oh shit, I'm going to say something stupid. This guy's not going to edit it out. I'm going to sound like an idiot. So I mean, I'm, I'm probably just as nervous as they are. And you're you are out of the Navy as of two days, three days now. Yes, officially a civilian. All right, one well, congratulations. 
It's Thanks, awesome sir. being the first interview. <laughs> yeah, my first civilian interview. He's free. Now, one question I had for you is, I've heard your origin story, so to speak, how it was um, you were at a bar and you wanted to pick up a woman. Yeah. And that kind of got you into things. Yeah. There's this thing called eh, 17 to 20 years that's missing. <laughs> so without revealing too much that could get you in trouble, can we get a thumbnail? Some of what you've been doing the past 17 to 20 years of life. Sure. I've uh, worked in the prisoner management system, working with prisoners for several years in different places around the world. And recently, within the last decade, I was actually for a few years in charge of the East Coast underwater robotics part of the Navy. So I ran underwater robots for a couple of years. And after that, moved over to the Naval Expeditionary Combat Command and worked there for quite some time and was teaching combat operations for international stuff. Interesting. So you weren't doing then... I mean, obviously the prison background ties in really well with interrogation and things of that sort, but it sounds like you moved away from that. Absolutely, I did. There was a uh, a, a medical thing where I couldn't do uh, extremely violent stuff anymore. So I came back here and I became a kind of a just an instructor here in Little Creek in Virginia. And is that when you started developing the ellipsis manual itself? Yes, probably about uh, nine years ago started doing that. You sort of have a, have a split identity, your day job or what you were doing, which is command oriented yeah, or mission oriented. And then I guess, um, behavioral engineering. Is that what you call this? Yeah, I would. Yes. Now to get that right, because I throw out, you know, persuasion, manipulation, interrogation, blah, 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 blah. Can you give me a kind of a picture of who Chase Hughes is? I don't know how you want that to sound. <laughs> what it is you do and what it entails just a nice kind of a round thing so that way i don't you know go too far down one path like i don't know if you do negotiation or not i mentioned okay. Chris i got it are you going to edit this out probably not <laughs> okay good deal <laughs> so i would say that the main thing that i focus on is behavior engineering and behavior engineering is different from persuasion and influence because persuasion and influence teach you skills that pretty much apply to everyone. Like the Robert Cialdini book, which I'm, I've learned a lot from. He's uh, one of the greats. But practicing influence that applies to everyone is like learning surgery without studying anatomy at all. So if you are learning persuasion techniques and you have no idea how to read who you're talking to, and you have no idea how to read tiny little muscular movements to see whether or not these techniques are working or whether or not you're digging yourself into a 10-foot hole, you're only going to find out whether or not they work at the very end. You're only going to find out when the sale is going to happen when you go to close, not at the beginning. So I think if I were to define behavior engineering, it would be having the skills to gather data about a human being exploit that information or use it in the techniques of persuasion and influence and linguistics to achieve an outcome. So the person comes first. So a lot of times we treat people like a piano, like, yes, persuasion skills are hard to learn. Learning piano is hard. But in real life, none of these influence books mention 
that when we're dealing with humans, it's like a piano, except the keys are in different places every single time you sit down at the piano. So you've got to look and you have to know what to look for. And I thought that was the one thing that was really missing. And of course, we created a whole bunch of brand new influence and persuasion tactics. But the, the key thing that I thought was missing for all time was this people reading aspect and understanding how human needs drive behavior and how every human being is a product of past hurt mm. and past successes. So then if you could see someone's needs, you know what their fears are. Mm -hmm. So we have that list uh, in, in the ellipsis manual, like this is how you identify what per, a person's needs are. And those needs drive into what their biggest fears are. And these are usually fears that they would never write down, not because they're scared to admit it, but because they're unconscious. They're, these are the deeply buried fears that govern a lot of our behavior. That's why somebody buys a, a spends three paychecks just to put a down payment on a BMW when they know they can't afford it. That's There's some kind of a fear there, which is behind the need that's driving the behavior. So when we start to see uh, the fears and insecurities of people, it really helps to humanize the people around us. And it's really, it's really sad at first, just seeing how uh, the, the, you, there's a universal truth that every person that you look at is suffering in one way or another. Sure. We're all dying. <laughs> Ultimately. <laughs> dying. So at its base, it sounds like it's communication. Like either you are trying to convey a message to them that can be heard, or you are trying to receive what they are desperately trying to get out or communicate. Or desperately trying to hide. True. But yes, absolutely. But freeing that information, huh, it's probably good for them anyway. It's, it's really surprising when a lot of the techniques that I teach in my private seminars are how to yank off somebody's social mask. And just basically have them standing there psychologically naked and having someone do that. You're basically manufacturing authenticity and psychological nudity in a person who is otherwise going to hide everything. So the feeling that happens when they know that, wow, I'm completely naked and I'm not being judged. All of these fears, all of all of this nasty stuff they try to hide from the entire world gets exposed. It's really strange that it's the most freeing thing that they've experienced in a very long time, even if they've only known you for a few minutes, that builds a connection like nothing else. And one thing I open a lot of my speeches with, especially when I speak at universities, is if you drove home today and somehow had the magical ability to see the internet browsing history of all of your neighbors, <laughs> we all think that we would be really judgmental. But in fact, Seeing everyone else just completely vulnerable, completely open, makes us a little bit more endeared to them because they're a little bit more human. I think the most important part you said to begin with, at least to me, is not judging. Yeah. And that's probably the most difficult part for anyone involved. But if you can genuinely not judge, then yes, people would naturally feel very welcome or cared for. Yeah. Because who, who does, who do they go to mom or dad? You know, hopefully you know, some sort of parental figure who won't judge. Yeah. And it's so true that I, I think I've seen a very strong correlation with 
the people that judge the most know themselves the least. Hmm. Can you elaborate? So someone who really knows themselves is very familiar and completely okay with all of their flaws. They know they're completely screwed up. They know they have X, Y, and Z number of personal traits that they know that like, if I watch this infomercial for five more minutes, I'm pulling out my credit card. <laughs> they like, they understand all of their weaknesses. So they're way less likely to judge other people because they know, wow, that guy's screwed up. So am I. And it becomes dangerous when you have someone that doesn't know themselves really well. And they're a little bit more likely to, to judge other people because that's kind of what Carl Jung called the shadow. Mm. That's the part of themselves. They don't even want to think about themselves. And does that lead into the uh, firewall illusion or delusion that you've spoken about before? Yeah, absolutely. I always think of uh, the root of all evil with us is confirmation bias. Yes. Like we always look for, oh, I knew that about him. See, I knew that about him. See, and I feel like that may be um, a mistake that we have causing the firewall illusion or delusion. Is that a fair statement? I think so. When we have that confirmation bias, I think it stems, I think it initially stems, this is my theory, from someone who is overly concerned with pecking order or status within a pack. Because that, that need to be right is also the need to be somewhere inside of a pecking order. I'm on top of this guy. I'm right. This guy is wrong. Or this guy is showing me this body language. I can see this guy's fears and insecurities. I am better than him. So this is when people get kind of wrapped around the social hierarchy and they're overly concerned with status. And the, the firewall illusion is really similar that the people who buy antivirus software, the people who buy anti-malware software to protect their computers are the people that completely know and understand that their computer is vulnerable. Sure. So the people who don't think that they can be manipulated, don't think they can be controlled, are in fact the easiest people to get control of. Because they don't have the firewall there. They don't have an, an attention, paying attention to how someone else is speaking to them or whether or not they're falling for something or being coerced into making a decision because they automatically assume that nothing will ever happen to them. So even when one of those people who don't, who think they have a firewall, when they get manipulated into making a decision, what's really funny is they will take it to the take it to the grave, swearing up and down that that was their own decision. Nobody made them do it. Wow, that makes me think of when you talked about interrogation and doing the Colombo, as I'd call it. Those are almost the simpler ones, then, right? Because they feel like they're in charge and they blather. Yeah, and that's just a result of comfort because you're giving someone their need, which fulfills their fears. Their fear is not being in charge. Their fear is being seen as weak. And just in that one scenario from the interrogation room. Okay, so humility may be your biggest defense? I firmly believe so. I have found that the hardest people to influence are the people with the most humility and the most presence. So people who are extremely self-aware and extremely present at the same time. So the, the Bill Clinton type of people, just the, the calm, centered attitude. The people who are not posturing, 
They're not collapsing into the moment. They just have that kind of composure that keeps them in the moment and humility. Hmm. That's really cool to hear. So get your shit together and be humble. <laughs> yeah. Because you don't know anything. And that's why, like, uh, we talk, I know you don't like pickup. I know you don't like no, the pickup scene. Not really. <laughs> I, I will confess, when I was younger, that stuff was appealing to me. And this is before, probably right as I was kind of reading about body language, reading about girls, and just trying to understand girls better. Um, I fell into the pickup trap. And it took probably a year. I was obsessed with this this these study materials that they would produce. And it took me, like I was already in college for psychology. I'd been studying psychology for years before this. And I finally realized that I could not find a pickup technique that was not a way to fake and pretend like you have your shit together. Mm -hmm. That's all it is. If you look at any technique, oh, have your posture straight up and down. Speak with a loud voice. Move your hands around. Like this is... It's a book on how to pretend and trick people into thinking you have your shit together. And then I realized, like, if you just have your life together and have your life in order, the pickup thing is just a byproduct. You're just naturally attractive. You don't have to do anything. You can make all the mistakes. You can do anything you want. Just having your shit together makes a lot of just kind of a domino effect around the rest of your life to where the rest of that stuff is just a byproduct. Right. Like pretending you're interested. How about be interested? <laughs> yeah. That makes it a superpower. My issue with the pickup society or whatever you want to call it, pickup artist community is I think the very premise of it is gross. It is treating other people as if they are objects by its very nature. Yeah. It's, and, it's, it's super sociopathic. Yeah. I mean, I'd almost say it's like libertarians in a way, but <laughs> I don't want to go there. It, it is a very cold analytical thing. Like, okay, uh, you are an Android. I'm going to move in this manner and you will react to me. Yeah. And I feel like that it attracts a certain kind of personality to it. Um, usually not an alpha male. Right usually kind of a beta male or all the way to the incel crowd. But I don't know. I find it disturbing. And I, I, I feel like it started to go by and it's less popular than it once was, but yeah, just not really in love with it. It reminds me if you don't mind me telling a, a five minute please story. So you, if you're familiar with grouper fish, grouper fish can be a couple of feet long and they can be, bigger than a man. And when grouper fish are swimming in the water, their main diet consists of smaller fish, which are a few inches long to maybe a foot long, depending on how big the grouper is. They feed on other fish. Anything that kind of swims in or near its mouth gets eaten up. But the grouper fish has formed a symbiotic relationship with this other fish called a cleaner wasp. Mm. And this thing's probably, it can be, cleaner wasp can be three to six inches long. And it goes into the mouth of the grouper fish. The grouper fish agrees, I won't eat you and you will clean my teeth. So this fish does a dance a few feet away when he's a safe distance from the grouper. He does a special dance, move in the water 
to let the grouper know he's there to perform his cleaning. So the grouper fish opens up his mouth. Cleaner fish goes in there, cleans out the inside of his mouth, cleans his teeth, and the grouper allows him to swim away unharmed. Hmm. In some regions of South America and somewhere over near Africa, there's still grouper fish and there's still the cleaner wasp fish. There's another breed of fish that's maybe kind of resembles the cleaner wasp a little bit. It's called the saber-tooth bloody fish. Mm. And this thing was hanging around one day and sees this cleaner wasp do this dance and watches this grouper fish just open his mouth. So this saber-tooth bloody fish copies this dance. Mm. So the grouper fish opens his mouth. Saber-tooth bloody fish goes down there inside the grouper's mouth and eats his tonsils, his gills, and just rips apart the inside of this fish's mouth. The fish can't really feel it until later. And the fish has a a belly full of the insides of this group of fish and swims right out. And that's that's really kind of what reminds me of the, the pickup thing. Like it's, I'm just going to replicate this dance. So she opens her mouth. Wow. That's a very disturbing analogy, but <laughs> I think quite perfect. And Chase, I definitely know you're about to go to England. Yes, we have a three-day seminar in London. Which is awesome. I wish I could be there. I'm sure you're going to have a great time though. So I need to let you go for now and not hold up too much time, but I hope you'll come back because I want to start breaking down individual things and go deeper. Absolutely, Eric. Yeah, I'd love to, man. All right. Thanks so much. See ya. Hey there. Thanks so much for listening. If you'd like to learn more, please check out unstructuredpod.com. There you can find all the episodes, free subscription information, and most of the players and even how to contact me. I would love to hear from you. You can even set up a 15-minute call with me about the show or anything you like. Again, it's at unstructuredpod.com, and I hope to hear from you. Now, in the spirit of sharing, here are other shows you may want to consider checking out. Thanks again. Hi, I'm Tyson Franklin, the host of It's No Secret with Dr. T, which is a small business and marketing podcast. Each week, I interview business leaders who openly share the secrets to the massive success. It's No Secret with Dr. T will educate entertain and inspire you check it out you'll find it wherever you listen to podcasts or you can go to my website tysonfranklin.com i did not grow up with very much money money's energy money is something that that really scares me you had about 60 grand in debt money isn't the answer somebody should just give me a lot of money my dream was to be the wwe wrestler but you realize that your dreams change over the years money's a tool it's a key to a gate and at the other side of the gate is the things that you really want to do with your life. It's the things that matter most to you. It's pursuing those values that make you ultimately happy. Listen to Inspired Money at inspiredmoney.fm.